it's still COVID. And so I think that kind of hit me at the end of last week. But we're all in it together, though. We are. Coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village, this is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review. The Virginia Policy Review is an independent organization staffed by students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia, with a mission to publish work that will impact the wider policy debate. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Academical. Welcome in. My name is Sean Belowski. I'm a second year MPP student, and I'm very excited for this week's episode. And the reason I'm excited is that this is our first collaboration of the semester. And we are actually collaborating this episode with the Baton Latinx Network, or BLN, as you'll hear it uh, referred during this conversation. And our co-host is Jasmine Rangel, and she is the, the president of BLN, of the Baton Latinx Network, and Jasmine is someone I'm really excited for you all to meet. I have really enjoyed getting to know Jasmine both uh, through class and, and personally over this last year plus. She has an amazing perspective and she brings so much to Batten. And I'm really thankful that, that she um, that she decided to, to join me and, and co-host. And so we'll talk with her. And then Jasmine and I will have a very interesting conversation with Luis Suyola of the Legal Aid Justice Center. And I'm really excited about talking with Luis and you all hearing the conversation Jasmine and I have with Luis because a couple reasons. One, the LAJC, the Legal Aid Justice Center, is very active in Charlottesville and around the state. And they do incredible, uh, incredible work. And so I'm excited to, to highlight kind of what they do. But then also, I'm very excited to talk with Luis because Luis is a, is a professional community organizer, advocate, activist. And Luis is someone who grew up, he was born and raised in Puerto Rico, and then came to Charlottesville to go to, to, go to school at UVA. And ever since he, he showed up in Charlottesville, he kind of dove in to, to local issues and really has has put put himself on the line. He has um, you know really devoted his his life to making you know the Charlottesville community a better place. And, and I'm excited to, to have that conversation because you know in, in the last uh, few months as we've seen uh, the protests in the street, have we, we've seen all the activism, the organizing, and it's one thing to to see that on on the news as the cameras rolling and see it going on. But I think it's worth taking taking the time to kind of take a step back and appreciating the fact that there are people who devote their lives to to making our community safer, to making our communities um, a better place for everyone to live. And and these are people that um, are, are doing the work when the cameras aren't rolling. And Luis is certainly one of those people. And you will you'll hear as well during our conversation. He was one of those people even before he was getting paid to do what he's doing. And so I'm excited to, to highlight that work and really kind of focus uh, focus in at a local level, which is one of one of Jasmine's passions. And so. Let's uh, let's get to it. Let's meet Jasmine. So Jasmine, I um, I told you this before we we started, but um, in the first couple episodes, I neglected to ask our co-hosts how they were feeling. I've asked the guests how they were feeling, but not the co-hosts. So I, I want to start with you. Just how how are you feeling? 
I earlier I was feeling um, really frustrated by one of the classes that I was in in the direction of the discussion that um, it went in, but thankfully it was um, resurrected my my mood. Uh, I'm feeling a lot more elated now. I got to talk to um, a male friend that Megan actually introduced me to from her internship with the post-secondary um, National Institute for Policy, something PNPI. Um, her name is Yesenia, and it was really nice to just talk to another uh, Latina about her lived experience, her experience as a professional, and get encouraged that even though I'm having a lot of questions on what my direction is, it's really nice to know that I have someone in my corner that hasn't even met me, but is um, excited to root me on. So. How did you make your way to bat? So it's a pretty long and crazy story. Um, I've realized now reflecting on my past and my path to getting to where I am right now that a lot of opportunities have literally just fallen in my lap and they looked cool. So I said yes. Um, and didn't realize that I was just kind of that a lot of things were falling them falling into place for me very nicely. Um, so I guess I'll start with, I went to a small private liberal arts college in Rome, Georgia called Barry College. Um, and I was only able to afford that education through the Ponder Scholars Program at that institution, which um, in turn for like a fully funded undergraduate education, which I guess right now would cost almost like $200,000 with its tuition price tag. Um, I would do 10 to 15 hours of community service in Rome, Georgia with um, a local nonprofit and would also receive some supplementary professional development um, day in or every, almost every week. Um, but essentially that program shaped me incredibly and I have everything to thank um, who I am professionally, personally to the Bonner Scholars Program. And so when I graduated, that was the only thing I loved and that I knew that I wanted to continue pursuing um, was in service of this program that gave so much to me. Uh, and so I went on to work to the national headquarters at the Bonner Foundation in Princeton, New Jersey, as uh, the New Jersey Bonner AmeriCorps Program Associate. Very long name, but essentially I was managing an AmeriCorps grant while also supporting um, about eight to nine institutions of higher education uh, in New Jersey with their both their Bonner program and their community engagement model. And so that was um, quite the riveting experience. I think I. I grew a lot, gained a lot of skills from that. Uh, but one thing I did get, and um, this might be just a like a theme too, is I got very frustrated with the system that I was in, the system that I was continuing to perpetuate through um, like this service program that just funded um, like band aids essentially for broken parts of our um, so so socioeconomic system. Um, and so I really wasn't happy with that. And I thought that the resolution would be to go pursue a city planning degree because I thought that that was at the, at that was at the crux of root causes was the way that our cities were built, the way that our communities were built um, to alleviate all of these social injustices. But then I was on a call with Baton, um, with my organization about creating a partnership between school and the Baton um, sorry, between Batten and the Bonner Scholars Program to start recruiting more individuals or more students of color, first generation, low income um, students into the Batten School so that they could pursue 
uh, masters of public policy and make a difference utilizing their backgrounds in order to uh, inform their experiences and their knowledge as policymakers. And so being on that call, um, I got <laughs> bragged on by our president um, about all the work that I did within uh, our organization on trying to teach undergraduate students why policy was important, how to look at policy implications, and how that was all connected to our direct service and pursuing social justice. Uh, and so I think through those conversations, I thought it was really cool that Batten had a curriculum that was different from other policy programs where they integrated leadership as a core um, tenant of being a good policymaker. And so um, I just was really interested. And so between uh, the policy degree and a planning degree, I went with the policy degree because of Craig Bolden. I don't know if you remember with our admitted students weekend, um, he had us all and he got very emotional and it got me emotional too, but he recognized the history and the national um, meaning that's behind Charlottesville. And he like made a very deliberate ask for us to not be the students who ran away from problems, but who ran to them. And I thought that that was, that was a very big calling that I, I wanted to be the person that ran to problems to, to fix them as much as I could or to support other people to fix them. Um, and so Craig Bolden definitely uh, kind of just sealed the deal for me of like, yes, okay, this is the kind of person, this is the kind of leader that I want to be um, in the policy sphere. So I'm glad you, you circled around to, you know, how running to, to the problems, because you, you kind of start off with how things fell in your lap. And, and that's not, you know, you, you always said, you said, it, especially in the book club, you know, about good trouble, you know, kind of quoting the John Lewis thing, you know, make good trouble. And, and I think, you know, Jasmine, I think you might be the most active person in like, when you look at the fact with, with the equity collaborative, with what you're doing with BLM, with the Baton Latin X network, which we're going to touch on in just a second. And then also you're on the Baton graduate council, you know, last year you were doing crucial conversations. I mean, you, you're, you are truly, you know, I can't think of someone who's more active and, and who's like taken on so much. And so, uh, you know, when you said things fell in your lap, I was like, well, you're just being humble because I mean, you truly, and, 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 you know, you mentioned, and we, and I think our guests and we'll get to this, um, reflects kind of your passion for local kind of doing the work. And, um, and you, you really live that here at Bad. And I'm curious, you know, my question is how have you picked your spots? You know, how have you decided, you know, where, where to, where to really insert yourself and, um, and you inserted yourself in so much. And I, I think Batten is, is all the better for it, but how, how do you pick those spots? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think I take a moment to reflect on like my experiences and the value that I can bring to these organizations, um, just with either things that I have to say that I feel like need to be said or work that I feel needs to be done. And I'm the only one that can um, do it with the utmost intentionality. Um, so with at least the Batten Graduate Council, I knew that our, um, that that space would be a predominantly like white space. And regardless of what my role is as the community engagement um, that I needed to those conversations to bring in a different perspective that might be overlooked or um, to make sure that at least students of color were having some kind of representation, which 
almost always in predominantly white institutions falls on the students of color, uh, regardless of what their background is, um, which is a fine, I, I feel like that's the least that I can do with the privilege and the platform that I have is to just take on that emotional labor for other students of color for the ones that will come after we leave. Um, but uh, I mean, community engagement chair feels very natural with the experience that I have, um, very in tune with service and being locally based. Um, with the Baton Latinx network though, I feel like I got a really incredible opportunity to explore my Latinidad the first year. And um, I have everything to attribute that to um, the founders, Brian, Asha, and Lauren uh, for giving me a space to explore that and to uh, be very, embracing of my background and utilize that as not a hindrance to what I bring to the classroom or to the professional field, but as a as an invaluable asset to um, the work that I'll be doing. And so I wanted to continue to develop other Latinx students um, in that space because I think that we are so inundated with um, feeling lesser than because of our backgrounds or our opportunities or lack thereof that um yeah i just wanted to make sure that i was cultivating a space where uh all of our all of the very little students that we have um latinx students that they were able to fully embrace their backgrounds as a benefit and not a hindrance and, and you mentioned you know the baton um latinx network was founded in january i believe officially stood up in january of 2019 so i guess the semester before you and i started at, at baton and so um now that you're um you know you're kind of leading leading the organization what's what's kind of the vision what what's the you kind of touched on it a bit with what you just said but for the next year what's kind of what's kind of your vision yeah for blm that's a good that's a good question too. Um, we are, which personally, um, my vision is to make sure that I am um, empowering. We have a executive team of all Latina women, um, which is incredibly powerful within itself. Um, and so I think my personal goal is just to make sure that they all feel empowered to do really incredible work um, and to be very confident in um, in the classroom, in professional spaces, and that they feel like they can leverage their background for uh, good opportunities. But otherwise, for like our entire like organization, it is to ensure that we are consistently providing professional development opportunities to um, Latinx students, not just within Baton, but also outside of Baton. I think that's a big thing that we're um, trying to make sure that we do is that we don't just operate in a silo. Um, but then also it's, it's to recruit more Latinx students. Um, unfortunately, this net last year we had very few students matriculate into the graduate program um, that are Hispanic identifying or Latinx identifying. And uh, that's really difficult to grapple with considering that we are one of the highest growing um, minorities in the country, yet we don't have the equivalent representation in a lot of these institutions that um, are so powerful and that can build up social mobility. Um, so that's, I think those are two big tenants that we want to focus on this next year. Well, and the the guest that you and I uh, spoke with uh, is Luis Oyola, and he is from the Legal Aid um, 
Justice Center in Charlottesville. And Jasmine, I was I was super excited um, because this guest was uh, you, you did the legwork here. You you booked the guest. And so uh, it was your idea. And it was um, I was super excited when when I got the email that, that this was who we were talking with. Um, one, because LAJC does great work in Charlottesville and throughout the region, but also just the focus on on the community, on local. And I know that speaks to kind of your passions. But also, Luis, you know, he has he was a um, he was a student at UVA, and um, you know the, the way that he really kind of um, you know kind of threw himself into the community, you know, and really like was trying to make a difference. And and I was uh, I was so so thrilled uh, with this idea and, and the conversation we had. And so uh, I'm curious, you know, um, what what made you reach out to Luis and and uh, it, it, the the, the Kind of connection feels natural just given your your interests and especially your your local focus but um what made you reach out to him and um and what was it that that uh said hey this is someone i'd, I'd like to speak with yeah i get a lot of my um i seek a lot of my knowledge and my own personal growth from activists and organizers so i think that was um just my kind of natural inclination to is to look towards who who's doing the groundwork that can really inform um people at the top um of what the realistic and really hard narratives are on the ground um but ultimately i think that in the batten school we don't get enough narratives from people that are doing the the groundwork we get a lot of folks that are doing nonprofit work and that is that is on the groundwork. Um, but I think that people that are organizing and who are intentionally putting the people, the community and doing all of their work informed by their lived experiences, I think that we need to delve into that a little bit more further as as a school, as policy leaders or policy makers in the future. We don't want to be making policy on behalf of people because that's what we think is right. And that's what the books tell us. And that's what the academics tell us. It's we should be looking to people for what they want and what the change that they want to see. Um, and I think that because my mindset has always been community informed policy and I need to be uplifting and empowering the community so that they can make their own policy one day. Um, I think that I wanted to bring in that perspective and that differential approach to the conversations that we have at Patton. Well, Jasmine, thank you again for, um, for again, booking this guest. And, and without further ado, here's our conversation with Luis Uyola. So Luis, uh, you know, just one of the questions we like to start off with all of our guests is given everything that is going on, uh, just simply, how, how are you feeling? So, I mean, I, I can't lie, right? Like, I'm feeling stressed and overwhelmed. I've, that's been the case with a lot of people. But really, overall, I'm okay. Like, I honestly don't have that much to complain about, except for a broken foot that I currently have propped up on a chair. I know. How did... How did... I'm healing. It's okay. I'm... <laughs> how did the broken foot happen? I was walking up the steps with wet shoes and slipped like it's not that it's not that grand of a story it's broken <laughs> no that that does suck though i mean um limiting your mobility i guess is good in a way um it forces you to stay isolated or at least quarantined a little bit more but it does um suck 
We're sorry to hear that. We hope that your foot gets better. <laughs> it's okay. I appreciate that. Well, with, with the, you know, the way we've been living, Luis, since March, you know, basically in this lockdown and the work that you do with um, the Legal Aid Justice Center, you know, how, how have those feelings evolved over a time that has been, you know, um, pretty tumultuous on, on many fronts in this country? So how, how have those feelings evolved for you recently? Um, so, I mean, as far as the pandemic goes, I think it has really magnified a lot of issues that we have been working on for a long time. You know, uh, we work a lot of, uh, with a lot of issues that have to do with discrimination and disproportionate impact. Um, and, you know, this pandemic has just really just blown that up, you know, in many ways, like housing, who is who is uh, able to pay rent, who has eligible benefits um, in workplaces, who is deemed an essential worker, and and what do those phases look like? You know, they're usually black and brown, and how are they treated? How are they protected? Um, how much are they paid? Um, and then who has to live in fear of accessing proper resources and proper information when they feel like, around the corner, ice might nab them, you know? Um, it's really, really magnified that. And so in a way it has sh greatly shifted our work in some ways, but also like just added a lot more work. Um, and, you know, ever since the uprising in Minneapolis kicked off, it we've had to have a lot of conversations about like, what, um, what does that mean for us? Like, what does that mean for us when when like people who have been dealing with the brunt of police brutality for years are now saying defund the police you know um they're now saying you know we're done we're done with with reforms that are not actually stopping the violence we need something deeper we've been using the summer to really try to reckon with that that's great and luis is there how are you your immediate like professional or personal community taking care of like one another or you're just yourselves. I, I think it's a lot, the work that you do right now um, and given all of our recent events is so hard on the soul. Um, how are you taking care of yourself and taking care of your community? I mean, to, to the best that I can, I, I think that's something that I have had to <laughs> grapple with too is, is how to really take care of myself. This has been a really challenging time um, but, you know, I'm really thankful that, that, that Legal Aid Justice Center has recognized the need for care and has given us a lot of flexibility and a lot of that time for us to um, take care of ourselves and take care of each other. You know, we can't literally be physically with each other, um, but uh, definitely, like, the organization has given that space. And, and I'm grateful for my partner and my friends for really, like, looking out for each other in these times. Luis, kind of want to dive a little bit into into your background, and so um, so you were born and raised in Puerto Rico. And when did you when did you make your way to Virginia? Um, I came to Virginia in two thousand eight to study at UVA. Got it. And, and it seems like um, from the research that that we've done, you know, you've kind of been um, an activist and an organizer for you know. It seems like it kind of you know resides very deep within you. You know, it's something that, that you're very passionate about, something you've been involved with for a long time. It seems like since you've, um, you know, 
came to Virginia. And so I'm just kind of curious what in your background led you, led you on this path to, to do the work that you're doing? Um, well, personally, I mean, personally, I don't know. It just felt innate to me. Like I can't, I have been since I was a teenager, very interested in histories of decolonization and, um, and histories of, of fighting oppression. I can't really pin, pinpoint like what time in my life that was. It just sort of came to me. Like I just saw around me, like this is how colonialism is affecting my life here in Puerto Rico and, and it needs to change, you know, and, and, and that led me to think about what, what, what other forms of oppression are out there, you know, and, and how are they interlinked. So that's just led me to always have an itch to do something about it. And, and coming to Virginia just felt like the right time to just dive deep. And I was very hungry to get involved. Um, and out of that work and just honestly, like just whatever popped out that felt important, um, uh, particularly around, you know, issues of racial justice, I, I tried to be there. And out of that, I got to know Legal Aid Justice Center as an organization that really like worked alongside a lot of community groups as sort of like legal expertise usually, and um, and that led me to like really get to know people there, and and eventually led me to like see this position that they have had for immigrant organizer. At that time, you know, I had already been involved with immigrant immigrant justice work since I came here, but. At that particular time, I was doing work with Sanctuary here and with um, supporting asylum seekers that were uh, making their way from the border to their sponsors. Um, so out of that, um, I applied to work in 2018 and um, offered this position. And also at that time, I was sort of hitting a point where I was like, maybe I should get paid for this work. Um, and um, so, you know, not not because like that's like my goal, but it was just really getting really hard to like keep up with my life and my my close one's life and and not get paid for what I actually passionately believe. Um, so that's that's sort of what drove me to that. And and honestly, I've just learned a lot since then. I've, I've been really grateful for this. That's great, Do you, Luis. When you um, think about your background as uh, being someone from Puerto Rico who like has been allotted um, your own privileges of being a UVA grad and being very well educated and very well motivated. Um, how is the nature of your work being so community engaged or focused in the Latinx community kind of typically? Um, how has your background as like a Puerto Rican kind of helped you in those settings and build trust? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I mean, first of all, I did not graduate from UVA. <laughs> I, actually, I actually left UVA. Um, um, but, um, it, it has definitely influenced, but, you know, and when, when you sent me these questions, I, I was just reflecting on that and, you know, I just want to be clear, I am so proud of being Puerto Rican and, and like knowing about the histories of colonialism and, and my own direct experiences in us arriving here and just feeling the way that Puerto Ricans are racialized here. That's definitely influenced me, but honestly, I've been shaped more about, the complexities of that identity in spite of of being latinx or whatever people want to call it 
um, you know, like learning about indigeneity, colonialism, anti-blackness, nationalism, queerness, xenophobia, all of these issues that are alive in Latin America as much as they are in the U.S., um, I feel like that has actually informed me more in this work, um, including at LAJC. Like, I, I end up working alongside many attorneys um, inside and outside of LAJC, and in my specific role, I have learned the importance of knowing, for example, what it is to be persecuted as like a Garifuna person in Honduras um, or a Mayan in Guatemala or to be persecuted as trans everywhere. Um, I, you know, it's, it's, that's become really important because you, you can't win asylum, you can't build a movement without recognizing those histories that are sometimes unintentionally or intentionally glossed over when people think Latinx. Luis, with your work, um, you mentioned kind of, um, for lack of a better term, professionalizing your work and getting paid for it now with LAJC. I'm curious, how has your your activism and organizing, has it changed at all within the, the structure of LAJC? Or um, you know, how has that influenced the way that you, you go about your work now? Yeah, I mean, speaking, in terms of general, general being a paid organizer, um, it's, I would say it's in, in one way it has influenced me in giving me access to like just more, more training, more resources, other people that have this profession and like learning from them. Um, and just having the time to like really reflect and think about it and not just like whatever I have the time for, I'm just going to do that. Um, like it, it's it sort of made me slow, slow down and be more intentional about how I do it. Um, and then on the flip side, um, it has been, I've learned a lot about the world of nonprofits and it has been sort of interesting to, to see how, um, um, like how, you, how, you know, it's sort of the, the double-edged sort of like, you have the time to do this and it, and it provides you with the living but then you have to abide by rules of, of funding and, and all of that, um, which, which is fine. Like I kind of came into it expecting that and I know, I know how to make the best of it that I can, um, but it's, it's just now that I'm living it. And so like I've, I've tried, I don't, I don't know if um, I'm the sole judge to say like if I'm successful, but I've tried to be intentional about working within those limits and also trying to pursue like the actual um, liberatory values that I have, you know. One last question kind of on your background and, and your approach. And, um, you know, notice you, you very um, literally kind of put, have put your body on the line for, for these causes. And I'm just kind of curious um, your, um, your willingness to do that in the way you approach the work when you're trying to organize folks that, that, um, you know, have different, um, I don't know if thresholds is the right word, but you know, how, how do you go about, you know, taking a leadership, being a leadership example when you very clearly are, are comfortable, you know, being the example and you will not ask someone to do something that, that you wouldn't do yourself. Right. And so how do you take that, that stance and organizing and really, you know, try to, um, try to inspire folks 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you you really get to it when when you say lead by example. Um, that that's been a big big value for me. That um, I I really don't want to tell people to do something that I would wouldn't want to do myself. Um, that said, particularly with working with undocumented immigrants, um, I think it is really important that like in in the way that I handle myself, in the way that I handle the work, that I don't end up um, exacerbating um, situations for people who are undocumented. Um, if they end up being exposed in ways that they didn't consent to, um, if they end up like putting themselves in, in harm's way. So I, I, I have had to be mindful in, in that regard for undocumented immigrants um, that I work with. Now, you know, I have mad respect for undocumented immigrants who make that choice and, and say, like, I will, I will put myself on the front line and I do everything that I can to support that. Um, but that's not the case for everybody. And I have to be mindful of that. Um, in the sense, now in the case of like, like people like myself who might consider ourselves allies or people who just don't have that identity, um, I've, I've learned how to be very passionate and very patient. Um, and, and just like, just help people see and sort of connect with, with, with people who are directly impacted, right? And so that, so that they know like, this is how this person is experiencing this. And this is, this is like the nuance, like, right? Like this, it, you shouldn't be against ICE because you don't like Trump. <laughs> you should be against ICE because ICE is hurting undocumented people, you know? Um, and you should really understand that. And that means that you have to question yourselves very um, deep things about, you know, for example, for white people, like their complacency and white supremacy and what that means for what they have to do to fight it. Yeah. Luis, when you mentioned a lot of, um, a lot of this conversation on we should care because it just affects immigrants and it, it, it makes their lives harder. I think one thing that's obviously made their life, the lives of immigrant communities and just marginalized communities in general, much more harder has been this pandemic. Um, and I mean, it, it all has affected us in a variety of ways, but I think to what you're saying, we've seen previous injustices now completely exacerbated due to this pandemic that's been so um, insanely handled. But how have you seen the work with LAJC change priorities or change in directions um, uh, as a result of COVID-19? Um, so I would say, you know, like, like I said, it's definitely magnified a lot of issues for us and, and we try to Early on in the pandemic, we tried to get ahead of it by laying out sort of policy changes that were necessary. But even then, like, is I mean, I don't think anybody could have predicted at the time that the federal government would be this negligent, um, and we would still be in the middle of a pandemic six months later. But um, it's definitely magnified a lot of issues um, in my in my work. Like, you know, you all see a lot of what is publicly done, like bills, lawsuits, campaigns, etc. But most of my work is actually like very private, just work directly with with people in the immigrant communities. Um, a lot of times helping them out directly in ways that are unrelated to campaigns. And that part has very has been very impacted. You know, um, I try to communicate with people remotely through texts or phone calls, but 
it's just not the same um, in that part. Like, I honestly haven't really like figured out how to how to go about it without feeling like I'm contributing to the spread of the virus. You know. Um, add to that, you know that, yeah, like every day is just like a new issue, and then we have this pandemic, and then the Trump administration announces we're gonna screw aside, screw over asylum seekers even further. And now we have to respond to that, you know. So it's just issue upon issue. Yeah, no, that's that's a big issue that I've also found is um, I approach a lot of work very community centered and community engagement just doesn't feel the same via Zoom or um, online on Google Docs or anything like that. So I I still applaud you for um, kind of making the best of a really terrible circumstance. Um, Previously, we had Elaine Poon um, from the Legal Aid Justice Center come to talk uh, to some of our students uh, for our annual service event called Baton Builds, and she gave us some small updates on how um, detentions for uh, immigrants have been very scary, at least for LAGC, because of the kind of um, covered stories of outbreaks on that. Can you tell us a little bit more on um, those stories? if you know um, of any updates in that realm. Sure, so this, is, this has been one of my main focuses throughout the summer. Um, I, I think you and you all and a lot of listeners have, have heard of the massive outbreak in Farmville Detention Center. Um, and it is still the largest outbreak that has happened in an immigrant detention center in the US. Um, and um so yeah i mean that's that's been a big focus and actually we have been demanding that um the commonwealth of virginia inspect the centers since before there was even a case because from working in the detention centers from working with people in the detained in, the, in farmville we knew that the conditions were bad and we knew that they were like a mass outbreak was just around the corner they actually had an outbreak last year of mumps, and and it was very poorly handled. Um, their detainees reported being abused by guards um, for demanding better treatment. So we knew that this was just just this was just going to happen in detention centers. You get outbreaks, and and particularly in private detention centers like Farmville, um, you know, these corporations sort of try to keep everything out of sight and they don't have to do as much reporting. They don't have to do, um, they don't have to have as much oversight um, unless the state, the Commonwealth of Virginia is willing to step in. So we have had that. There was a very, very unfortunate death in early August of, of a Canadian immigrant, James Hill. Um, and a lot, a lot of, there have been protests at Bill. And protests in Richmond have been protests in Northern Virginia. Different targets like um, you know Senators Warner and Kane, um, ICE director, and and then also state officials. Um, so for us, where that has evolved is um, using the opportunity of this uh, special session um, that was you know convened um, in response to the protests um, to push for a bill that would expand oversight from the Commonwealth over the, the detention centers, both Farmville and Caroline. Um, as they are not, they're not actually owned by the federal government. They, like Farmville is a private facility and, and Caroline is owned by the local government. So 
they can have that oversight um, and we feel it's necessary to prevent the next outbreak. How optimistic are you that, I guess, this special session or that these legislations will um, come to fruition? I, I There's such little conversation around these outbreaks that I am very fearful of what this will lead to or um, what it might take for people to start paying attention. Yeah, I mean, and to your point, um, this is actually, as far as we know, I was talk actually talking with, with our legal director for the immigration program, Simon, about this last night, that I think this is the first bill that Virginia handles that has anything to do with immigrant detention centers. Um, so, so yeah, you're right. People don't have these conversations often enough. And um, however, you know, right now, today is, is going to be the, um, you know, sec second to last reading in the Senate floor. So um, probably tomorrow, the full Senate will vote on whether or not to pass this bill. We've been pushing very hard. Thankful for, thankful for all the coalition groups um, that have been supporting this bill as well, um, because that is what it's going to take. You know, it's, if, if it was left to just the representatives, they might not want to sort of poke that beast, that wasp nest of, of the federal government. Um, but, you know, all of the immigrants who have been very outspoken about this issue, all of the detainees that have spoken up about the, the conditions have really driven home the point that we need something. So Luis, you know, with, um, first off, who, who's, uh, who's sponsoring the bill? Oh yeah, that would be Senator Boisco from Fairfax. Gotcha. And and how how are you how are you feeling kind of going going into the vote? <laughs> Nervous. <laughs> uh, I mean, Boisco has been a great champion. Um, I don't know if how much you all have been keeping up with with the committee sessions and all that. Um, but she, when the bill has come up, she has uh, very ardently spoken to um, questions from both from both Democrats and Republicans about the constitutionality of the bill, about some people think it's not necessary, um, and, and she has been able to, to step up to the plate um, for that. Um, but, you know, like, for one, I think, you know, the, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the, the legality of the bill. A lot of people feel like if you do anything that might interfere with the federal government, then you'll run into issues. But uh, one thing that, that we've been pointing out is that there was actually a similar law in California um, that order that had the attorney general handle inspections of, of detention facilities. Um, and it was actually upheld that the government, the federal government challenged it and it was actually upheld by federal court. Um, and the Supreme Court denied review, which means that as of right now, that is the final precedent that as long as, you know, the health standards that you have for a detention center are not any more or less that you would have for any other local jail than a state can has the power to intervene. So um, we feel like there's a very, very strong precedent to do this. And, and we just need that kind of oversight. We can't wait for the federal, we can't wait three, three, four months into an outbreak for the federal government to do something. You know, Luis, you mentioned that this is the first bill, as far as you can tell, you know, in, in Virginia and the, the state government 
level, you know, that has to do with immigrant detention centers. And so I, I just kind of wonder, even before the vote takes place, and, and just curious your approach overall, you know, the activism and the, and the organizing, you know, how much of it really um, is is advancing the conversation, kind of moving that that Overton window, so to speak, to you know, kind of kind of shape public opinion to start having these conversations. And then, um, you know, how do you how do you weigh that part with the fact that you want policies and laws passed to to actually help people? And so, you know, how how do you kind of kind of balance the two? And and even you know you know, even if a vote doesn't go your way that you still feel, you know, you've, you've accomplished in, in advancing the conversation. So that's, it is a tricky balance. Um, you know, I, I, for us, for, for us at LAJC, you know, we, we try to be very intentional that we are doing, um, that we're looking out for our clients, right? Like that we are doing what our clients are asking for. We are a law firm after all, but also it is our philosophy that we should be led by those directly impacted. So this is something that has come out come out of conversations with detainees about what they are seeing in the detention centers. Um, so in a sense, we would do this whether or not we felt that there were enough votes, you know, like we would, we, we would try to find a way to address this through policy. Um, and then on the other hand, like you, like you said, this is, this has at the same time been a sort of litmus test into how the, the state, the, the, the Commonwealth government um, sort of sees and values the lives of those in the detention centers here in Virginia, um, not just with this particular bill, but also with the campaign we had early, put direct pressure on the administration to just to just go in there because um, they do have they do also have the powers under state of emergency, um, but they you know. They, they kept saying, no, we don't, but we'll ask the federal government to step in. Um, and, you know, we still, we still hold to that, but we also are looking for this policy fix at the same time. So all of this has just sort of magnified for us how much, how much more needs to be done, how much more advocacy, how much more education, how much more organizing needs to be done so that we're really listening to and heeding to the call of those detained in, in Farmville and Caroline. Mm -hmm. Well, here's to go hoping that the vote goes well today, um, I guess. Thank, thank you. I mean, I, we'll find out by the time this gets published, right? So yeah. we're hoping there's good news. Yeah, for sure. And I think even then, um, we'll probably try to put more information in the notes part of the, the podcast so that people, if they're really interested, they can go to LAGC site and um, read more about it and educate themselves. Uh, but Luis, I want to pivot to um, another thing that I personally have been grappling with in the last couple of months, and I'd love to um, kind of explore this conversation with you while we have you here. Um, at the onset of, you know, the murder of George Floyd and now racial justice coming to the forefront of national conversations and in every kind of conversation, um, I find it really difficult to deal with my Latinx identity, uh, knowing that we also, and at least some of my parents are Mexican, are Mexican immigrants um, and within just that country and that culture there's a lot of colorism and anti-black sentiments in our language our mainstream media our beauty standards um, and these led to really uncomfortable conversations just within my own immediate family on why protests were happening why it was important that this movement was giving getting the attention that it had right now 
um, and why there was just so much unrest. Uh, how have you kind of been able to engage with your Latinidad to support the Black Lives Matter movement? Um, so to start, you know, I, I spoke to trying to keep in mind my privileges. I, I try my best to sort of keep in mind the fact that I am white presenting, that I am a U.S. citizen. Um, so before I take any steps, I try, I try to keep that in mind. Um, but thinking about how to actually like engage with this moment and this movement, the, the, the word that really comes to mind is solidarity. You know, I, I, I really like genuine solidarity without any qualifiers, you know, like really trying to feel the phrase and none of us are free until all of us are free. Um, as uncomfortable and challenging it has been to really try to apply it. I mean, when, when I came here, it just, like I said before, it just sort of made sense to engage in local issues of racial justice, even before Black Lives Matter was an official movement, you know. Like, I just thought, why, why, why wouldn't I? If, if slavery is so much the foundation of, of Charlottesville, where I live, um, and it still has a huge legacy, like, why wouldn't I join the fight to reverse that legacy? Um, you know, if we're one day hopefully able to dismantle white supremacy and colonialism here, then maybe I can learn something about how to dismantle white supremacy and colonialism in Puerto Rico, you know, um, and make some friends along the way. Um, but at the same time, I don't, I know that's not how everyone feels. Um, and even if that's how I feel, it's a whole other story to try to actually embody that feeling and, and make it tangible. Um, I do have conversations with my parents about the work I do. They ask me a lot of questions about it. Um, and I, I also try to be very intentional about connecting organizers across communities um, and sort of connect the dots for people so they, they, they too can know the importance of like intentional multiracial solidarity. Um, I also try to thread the balance of like, I need to put in the work. And also I need to try to not take up too much space, you know, with, with all of my privileges. Um, it's a lot, but, you know, doing otherwise, I feel like I would just be living a life of, of despair and depression. And, and I just think that's not right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I really, I like what you said about, there's a lot of lessons that we can learn, I guess, just as a collective Latinx community um with our current situations and how conversations are happening of how we can deconstruct and unlearn a lot of our um histories um but i think when we when we previously talked um you mentioned this movement around de-icing virginia um can you tell us a little bit more about your work within that movement and its intersection with blm sure um so de-ice virginia is our super clever name for our overarching effort to detangle ICE operations from local law enforcement. Um, so when people think ICE, they typically think raids, right? Like agents coming to your door or agents entering a workplace. Um, but many, and in some parts of Virginia, most deportation proceedings are triggered by local arrests, um, which are facilitated by informal and formal practices that allow ICE to come and grab people out of jail. Um, I think the most well-known example of this kind of collaboration is 287G agreements. And for those who don't know 
what 287G agreements are. It's essentially a type of agreement that explicitly instructs a jail to accept detainer requests from ICE and hold immigrants past the release date so ICE can come and get them. Um, Prince William County in Northern Virginia had one of the oldest 287G agreements in the nation, um, but they actually just ended it this summer as a result of a very long running campaign that LAJC was a big part of. Um, Culpeper County, unfortunately, still has a 287G agreement. That's sort of the gist of DICE Virginia. Um, and I'll, I, you know, thinking about this question, I want to name two intersections that I think are important with Black Lives Matter. One is the narrative, this narrative that still gets played of good versus bad immigrants. Um, you know, uh, that narrative is used a lot to sort of justify quote unquote good deportations and it, as long as that person is, is a criminal in the eyes of the system. Uh, I think that this narrative is rooted in the same use of labels and mechanisms that from the carceral system that was created to and is still used to mainly oppress black people. Um, I think that is a very, very important intersection. Um, I also see a lot of similarity in the like sort of overbearing surveillance um, of black communities as I see with ICE. Uh, like so many families that I've, that I've worked with live in that constant fear of ICE being around the corner, even if the nearest, the actual nearest ICE agent is just nowhere to be seen. Um, there's just that constant fear because of that overbearing surveillance. Um, across both systems, there's a very similar use of ankle monitors, absurd bail determinations, beatings and deaths um, by officers with the officers being let off the hook. Um, there's just a lot of intertwining beyond like the specific agreements that I think is very important to 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 speak to. Yeah, that's that's really enlightening. Um, how have policymakers or community leaders reacted to this movement? I mean, I think the past few years, people have sort of the brutality of ICE has really come to light. Um, but there's a lot that we had already normalized before, um, particularly since before the Trump administration. Like right now, I think it's relatively easy to get policymakers to like use the term sanctuary and throw it around, right? And, and for example, or to get them to say, I don't cooperate with ICE. Um, it's, it's easy to get them to say that. On the other hand, it's a lot harder to say that even though so-and-so was convicted of a violent crime, that doesn't mean that they automatically deserve to be torn out of their communities and deported. Um, you know, de deportation, this is just me speaking for myself, De deportations don't actually reduce harm. Like they just move that harm somewhere else. Um, and, if, and if it doesn't move it somewhere else, it exacerbates it. Um, so as one example, we, we pushed the bill in the 2020 session, like the, the actual regular session in, in January, um, that would remove the state obligation to, for jails to ask and report citizenship status to ICE when, they, when someone is booked into jail for any charge. Um, this was bill um, HB 1150. In order for the bill to pass, it was actually amended to keep that mandate for felonies. So that's an, that's an improvement for people who may be charged with misdemeanors, but it still leaves those charged with felonies to exposed to ICE. Um, just to illustrate that point, I think, I think this sort of goes back to the previous question about like just fundamental beliefs about punishment and surveillance and those intersections. How have you seen uh, the reception to 
um, de-ice kind of evolve in the last the last few years? Because you know, you mentioned um, when you were kind of talking about de-ice and and just the brutality of ice, and when that's on full display, um, you know, I I think um, you know, I think it's opened the eyes of a lot of people. Um, and and when you're having that conversation, I was kind of thinking about the the movement around prison abolition. You know, it's like one of those things, like when you first hear it, you're like, what, what do you mean, you know, abolish prisons, but then you actually hear the theory behind it in the world that people are envisioning and trying to create. And, and it's, um, you know, I think um, you all call it de-ice, but abolish ice was kind of, you know, kind of heavy in the mainstream. And I think maybe the mainstream when people first heard it are like abolish it, you know, what, what are you talking about? But then when you, when you learn about just again, the brutality and the ruthlessness and just the, um, the coldness. I mean, it's, you know, it, it truly is just, um, you know, a very cold organization in the way that they operate. And it's, um, I, I'm curious, ha- have you seen the the narrative around it evolve in the last few years? Is, is those brutalities kind of, I, I think have been more, some, some light's been shed on those, on those brutalities a little bit more. I have definitely seen it um, evolve. And I, I don't think I was hearing the, the phrase or even I I wasn't saying it like abolish eyes until until it sort of picked up now I think you know for me it wasn't like a lack of desire and <laughs> um, more uh, a lack of imagination honestly like these these moments really really push us to to think a lot more deeply um, um, but you know I was thinking for uh, as far as LAJC is concerned and in terms of timing where the conversation is at, LAJC has technically been doing this work since at least since, you know, we were fighting 287G in Prince William County back in 2007. Um, it has certainly amped up because of all the recent changes in the past, you know, three years since Trump was, uh, came into office. Um, now, I will make it clear, LAJC doesn't have an official stance on abolishing ICE. But as far as the work that we do, you know, if someone is facing deportation and we have the capacity to try to prevent the deportation, we will do it. You know, if, if community members and community partners come to us and say, this is what ICE is doing in our communities, we will do the work that's uh, was within our capacity to try to, to try to stop that, you know, whether it's through litigation or policy changes or grassroots organizing, we will, we will try to support it. And just thinking about that, I just wanted to add one more comment that, you know, because it is such a like sort of flashpoint term, I just hope that people who say abolish ICE like really know what it means. Um, because if there ever comes a time that someone in power says we have abolished ICE, um, but all that they do is change the name of the agency and, or move them to some other department, um, then we haven't actually abolished ICE. So, yeah. Really great point. Um, and then when it when it comes to I guess just rec- honing in on the narrative and figuring out where the um, what it really truly means, what has it looked like to build a coalition around de-icing Virginia? To me, it looks like very slow, intentional work, um, and like as much as possible working alongside those directly impacted by these issues. Um, I have learned over time that it's not enough to have shared goals or shared values, um, although I will concede that you really need them to achieve very, very important short-term wins. And one thing that comes to mind is, for example, our License for All campaign or 
or Drive Virginia Forward that that got um, driver's licenses for undocumented folks in in the session. Like that's very very important short term win. Um, so I am grateful for coalitions like Virginia Coalition for Immigrant Rights or the Freedom All Virginia Coalition. You know th these coalitions that have been very intentional about fighting for short term goals so we can change things for people now but also are willing to stick it through challenges, you know, because they, they just come up. You can't have a coalition without challenges and to have conversations around values and long-term vision. Um, I think that's, that's a key part. Um, as far as DI's Virginia is concerned, I think it can't just be that white ice is doing under the Trump under the Trump administration is bad now. Um, but that what ice is doing has always been bad. Um, and we need to uproot xenophobia and racism in the long term. Um, and we need to make sure that everybody in the coalition has that same understanding. Luis, I, um, I printed off something. There was um, Adam Serwer of The Atlantic um, recently posted um, a pretty long article. And, and it's about, you know, are we living in the first, is this the first time where America's had an anti-racist majority? And, and I thought it was, and I'm curious if... Um, there was a poll, it was a June 2020 Monmouth University poll that, that Adam cites, and he says, um, or I'm sorry, the poll found increases across all races in the belief that law enforcement discriminates against Black people in the U.S. The same poll found that 76% of Americans considered racism and discrimination a big problem, which is up from 51% in 2015. And they kind of contrasted that in 1964, a poll taken nine months after the March on Washington when uh, Dr. King gave his I Have a Dream speech, 74% of Americans said um, that those mass demonstrations more, were more likely to harm than help the movement for racial equality. And so I, I kind of wonder if that shift, and at first it has to be proven to be sustained, right? And, um, but does that shift, does that change the approach to the, to the advocacy or the organizing at all um, if, um, if public sentiment cha changes like that? Or, or does, does the, do the strategy stay the same? I certainly don't think that the strategies stay the same. I think, you know, in my experience, um, because of that feeling that, you know, this, those who are in this work are always in the minority. Um, I think the strategies have been, have been built on the assumption that we should be okay with crumbs um, um, for, for, for better or worse, that we should be okay with, with minor reform. Um, so you know the, the polls are the you know listening to to the polls and the stats is 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 great is is heartening that people feel that way but i i hope that all of us uh you know those who have been in this work for a long time and those who are new to it that we all sort of reckon with with like the depth of of the work that is necessary um and and the depth of of what needs to change that like if you know if January 20th or 21st, um, it, is, it is someone other than Trump, um, I guess in this case, Biden, that comes to the White House, that, that we all know that, that we all recognize that that's not nowhere near the end of it, um, that we all don't just go back home. Um, I, I, think, I think we are in a very important moment, but we just need to um, just sort of realize the, the need for the death and work. And, and know that we just shouldn't go back to just accepting uh, minor reforms. I think that's a great point. And, and it's, you know, maybe 
people are convinced of the problem, but then they need to listen to what the solutions need to be, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, I think, um, Luis, what the way that we're ending all of these with our guests is um, we ask this final question to everybody, but what, what's the leadership lesson that you learned that you wish someone would have shared with you earlier in life? I like that question. I, I thought about it for a while when, when, uh, when Jasmine sent me it. Um, so I think it's just, it's not enough to, to just know, like as an organizer, the, the quote unquote formulas for successful movements. Um, I think it is much more important to build strong relationships that can weather all of the adversities, especially the unpredictable adversities that come when you try to change the system. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have to explain to y'all or the listeners that we are in unprecedented times, you know? Um, so while I certainly appreciate the campaign strategy workshops that I've been to the one-on-one trainings and, and I think, you know, people who are doing that, that today, more power to them. Um, but this, we're simply in a moment in history that no one could have prepared for. Um, you know, a lot of bright eyed college students who want to engage in activism, that was me. Um, they're sort of given like cookie cutter, one, two, three steps tasks that feel easy to do if you wanna be like a quote unquote activist, um, but they don't really get to the core of why people are doing, wanting to do the work that they're doing. Um, so you know, for me, the lessons that I have learned in leadership is that it has been more important to have people that I genuinely trust in my life and to be able to, you know, for us to get together to break outside of our comfort zones. Um, because that means that we'll have something to work with when the cookie cutter models are just not enough. Really well said. Uh, Luis, do you have anything that you'd like to either use this time to advocate for or to announce to our community to get involved with or to, um, continue getting educated on. I think that we've got a lot of um, a lot of people that are um, a quote unquote like maybe awake now. They're not woke, um, but they're awake. They're they're listening. They want to know. They want to know how to do the work. Um, I'd love to give you this time to just kind of give whatever parting thoughts you have um, to motivate a group of people that really want to make an impact. Sure, and I think I'll, I'll just go back to my previous point of the importance of, of multiracial solidarity. Um, I think wherever people come from to, to the work or just the realization that the system needs to change, whether it's immigration or policing um, or the environment, um, you name it, you know, feminism, uh, uh, queer politics, like just you name it. Wherever people come from, I think it's just really important to. Uh, look at the intersections and look at um, like the importance to like actually connect the movements, like literally connect the movements together. Um, you know, I, I will name one, um, one anecdote actually from yesterday. Um, I went to a flash demonstration in front of Tony Pham's house in, in Henrico. Uh, Tony Pham is, is the new director of ICE, um, and he is actually uh, a Vietnamese refugee. Um, and um, a lot of Vietnamese groups, um, one, of, one of the ones is uh, Viet Rice, 
have it very clear, you know, this is the fact that he is a Vietnamese refugee and he is now not just collaborating in, but directing the deportation of immigrants is, is sort of uh, a slap in the face of, of that heritage. And, and they went and did a demonstration in front of his house of saying as much in English and in Vietnamese. Um, and in that particular action, even though it wasn't very many people, it involved groups such as uh, Charlotte Uprising, which is a group that has been active since the killing of, of Keith Lamont Scott in, in, in 2015 in Charlotte. Um, that is a, a black-led group, you know, um, they were very intentionally in, in collaborating in that action and supporting each other very explicitly and and being there you know as someone who was just like hey this is happening you should come and i was like all right um and, and just showed up like seeing that energy of like groups that are sort of in, in in many people's heads not supposed to work together working together so beautifully and trusting each other um i think just drives home the point to me of, of the power of of working across communities and and so i i hope that people people take that in mind and um, you know, if, if what they care about is, is detention centers that they think about, well, is what happening in detention centers similar to what's happening in jails? Um, and, and how can we work together? You know, if what's happening with ICE, how is that similar to police and how can we work together? You know, I think that's, that's the point that I want people to take home. That will do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much to Luis and Jasmine. We will be back with another episode next week. Stay safe.